The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving... Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we always make sure that we are prepared. In this church age, God has given to every single believer not only the Holy Spirit who indwells us, but He also fills us. However, whenever we sin, the Scripture says that we grieve and we quench the Holy Spirit, which means that the filling ministry is temporarily squelched. The only way to recover is through 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Scripture tells us that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us, so we make it a priority to have a few moments of silent prayer before we begin our study each time to make sure, give everybody the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary and make sure they're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word. So let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that we have the opportunity to study your word, that you have given us a complete revelation of yourself and of how we are to live, that you and your grace have provided a perfect salvation for us, and with that perfect salvation you have also bequeathed to us a, a spiritual life in this church age that is far beyond anything ever experienced in any other time in human history. And with so much given to us, much is expected of us. So it is necessary for us to make sure that we have our thinking completely renovated by the teaching of your word. And learning your word and applying it is the highest form of, of worship. For in that we recognize that you have spoken to us in your word and it is our responsibility to learn what you have revealed to us. Now, Father, as we open your word, we pray that we might be responsive to it, that as we understand it and the Holy Spirit makes it clear to us that we might uh, believe it and see how it applies to our lives and then apply it that he might use it for our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the third chapter of Judges in the Old Testament, third chapter of Judges. Judges is the seventh book sandwiched between the larger book of Joshua and the much smaller book of Ruth, which incidentally is really a sort of an appendix to Judges in the Hebrew. 
Judges chapter 3, and we are now down to the seventh verse. What we have seen, by way of review, is that when Israel entered into the promised land, under the command of Joshua, under the uh, high command generalship of the angel of the Lord, they conquered the major strongholds in the land, and then it was time for a mopping up operation. Judges chapter 1 describes that mopping up operation and the failures that came as a result of the Jews' uh, inability or failure to trust God uh, consistently as time went by. And as year turned into year, they uh, began to compromise more and more with the culture surrounding them until by the end of the first chapter we see the indictment uh, given in the description of what happened in Dan. Not only in the northern territory of Dan did they uh, coexist with the Canaanites in the land and fail to annihilate them as God had commanded, but they were now defeated, the first tribe to be defeated by the Canaanites. So we see this continuous uh, this, uh, this decline in the, in the nation. In the second chapter, we see God's indictment and explanation of these events. In the first five verses, we see the announcement from the uh, angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. We studied that in detail. And we saw in the following verses that there would be a cycle that would take place in this book. The first two chapters, really down to 3.6, is the introduction setting the theme of the book of Judges. As we look at the outline of Judges, we see that there are three basic divisions. The first is from the first beginning of the book to 3.6. The second is the main body of the book, 3.7 to 16.31. And the third is the last four chapters, 17 to 21. In the first section, the introduction, we see the theme of the book laid out and the outline of the cycles of deliverance, that the Jews would disobey God and then they would come under divine discipline and God would send a nation that would uh, defeat them and would enslave them, and then they would cry out for deliverance and God would, in His grace, send a deliverer. This is developed in the main body of the book, and there we see the breakdown of the leadership of the nation. And as we go through this study progressively, I will begin to develop biblical principles of leadership. That can be applied, whether it's in terms of business, whether it's in terms of uh, political leadership, national leadership, military leadership, or leadership in the home. So principles of leadership uh, work across any category, whatever the field might be, and we see the breakdown of the leadership in the nation. And then in the final four chapters, the breakdown of spiritual failure of the people. Now, this is not written in in chronological order, so that the last four chapters describe events that take place between, during the chapters uh, 3, 7 through 16, 31, showing that the failure, the spiritual failure of the nation involves not only the people, but also the leaders, and the leaders were unable to uh, break the spiritual uh, negative volition of the people, and they were a product of the people. So as we go through this, we're going to see a continuous decline among the judges. The first is Othniel, the second Ehud, then Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. And then there, there is this uh, continuous decline among the, uh, 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 among the leaders. So by the time we get to the sixth cycle, 
of uh, discipline and deliverance with Samson, we see for the first time the people don't cry out to the Lord, and Samson is such a degenerate himself that he is virtually uh, undistinguishable from the pagan society around him because of his, his way he thinks and his behavior. And that really leads us to the theme of this whole book, and that is that Every, there, at this time, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And there's sort of a double entendre in that initial statement. There was no king in Israel. It's written about the time the monarchy begins as an explanation of why it was necessary to move to a strong centralized government. And the strong centralized government is established in 1 Samuel 8 when the people finally voice their complete objection to God and his theocratic rule. If you remember, under the Mosaic Covenant, God established a theocracy. There was no executive branch of government. There was no king or president or uh, someone of that type. There is God in the place of any human leader. Because of that, and because of the way the Mosaic Law was laid out, it was clear that the people had, in that context, and we studied the historical context, the greatest level of personal freedom in the ancient world. They're situated as a nation on the crossroads of the ancient world so that all the travelers, all the merchants, all of the tradesmen and caravans that were traveling from nation to nation would come through Israel. And when they did, they would see something that they saw nowhere else. And that was personal freedom. There was no tyrant at the head of government, not like in Egypt where the Pharaoh was identified with God and so everyone was indeed a slave to Pharaoh or the strong kings in the uh, tyrannical governments in the Mesopotamian uh, region and down in the uh, Fertile Crescent. So of all of these nations, they all had strong power uh, authority structures where the people had little or no freedom. And yet when you would come to Israel, there was this light shining in the dark darkness. There was a nation where the people had uh, true personal freedom. They could uh, accumulate wealth. They had possession. They possessed their land, not the king, not the state. It was seen as the individual possession. There was, a, uh, there was taxation, but taxation was limited because it was recognized that what people earned was theirs. It was not the, the property of the state. And what happens by 1 Samuel 8, when the people have rejected God as the king, there is literally a shift. It's almost like a minor dispensational shift from the theocracy to monarchy. And at that time, God warns them, since you have rejected me, you have opted for a king, and he is going to increase the burden of taxation upon you, and he is going to take away many of your personal freedoms. So that was the warning. And this is what always happens when there is spiritual decline in the nation. There is a consequent loss of capacity for freedom. There is a search for security from the state as opposed to from God. And so the state is looked to as the source of security and financial blessing. And as a result of that, because when a people get in that uh, situation, they exchange uh, spiritual values and absolutes for relativism. They exchange spiritual values for material prosperity. And they begin to invest in their view of government uh, the concept of deity. And so the state becomes the solution to all of man's problems rather than God and, the, uh, and with that, individual freedom is reduced and individual responsibility is rejected. And all of that is a result of people thinking like a pagan instead of like a Christian. Now, for those of you who are new, 
When I use the word pagan, I'm not using that as some sort of insulting, pejorative term. It's a very technical term, and it refers to anyone who does not think like the Bible says we ought to think. That is the concept of paganism. It it refers to any culture, no matter how intelligent, no matter how educated or sophisticated their thinking might be. If it does not align with Scripture, then the technical term for that is that it is pagan thought. And what we see in Judges is a nation that enters the land operating on divine viewpoint principles and trusting God, which enables them to conquer the enemies. And by the end of the book of Judges, they don't look any different from their sur- the surrounding nations. They have completely absorbed the thinking, the values, the lifestyle of the cultures in the land, and they have become no different from the unbelievers, and they do not think any differently from the unbelievers. And the result is that the, the nation becomes paganized, they lose their freedoms, and they become enslaved time and time again. So we see that this process continues, and as we came to the end of the introduction, we saw that they failed to drive out all of the nations that were left when Joshua died. And so God established these nations in the land, allowed them, he caused them to take up or to continue their uh, possession within the borders of Israel for the purpose of testing Israel. We spent the last three weeks going over the doctrine of testing and how this relates and is analogous to our spiritual life today. But one aspect that I did not go into was covered in verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2. Only in order that the generation of the sons of Israel, these are those that came after Joshua, these are those who did not experience, they did not have the direct empirical knowledge of God's ability to give them victory in warfare. So God left the nations as enemies in their midst in order to teach them war. Now, I want, to pay, want you to pay attention to that because modern pagan thought has a lot of problems with that. You see, what happens in pagan thought is you, you develop your standards, your, your morals, your values autonomously. You derive them from your own experience, your own intuition, your, uh, or your own reason, and then you try to impose that upon the Scriptures. And one of the things that has come along is the whole idea of pacifism. And pacifism is typical of pagan thought. It does not have its root in biblical Christianity. First of all, I want to observe that this warfare is not warfare for the sake of warfare. God is not developing a nation like the Spartans later on in Greece. He is not developing a warrior class. That is not the purpose. The purpose is a recognition of the fact that living in the devil's world, there will always be those nations who uh, succumb to a power lust, and want to take away the freedom of others. And the only way to secure that freedom is through military victory. Therefore, it is incumbent upon any nation that desires to maintain their freedoms to have a strong military, not for the purpose of going out and and, uh, acquiring more territory and defeating other peoples, but for the purpose of self-defense. So this is not warfare for the sake of warfare, but warfare for the purpose of being able to defend and preserve their national freedoms. Second point, observation, as long as we live in the devil's world before Jesus Christ returns, there will be wars and rumors of war. That we will never have world peace during this time. There will never be world peace until Jesus Christ returns, and so all attempts 
by the United Nations and any other uh, group like that to try to bring about world peace uh, will always be frustrated because man is inherently sinful. Now, see, this is the basic issue, is that modern man wants to operate on the concept that man is basically good, whereas the Bible operates on the presupposition that man is basically evil, that every one of us is born with a sin nature, and that sin nature, whether it is in an Adolf Hitler, a Saddam Hussein, uh, Joseph Stalin, or whether it is in your sweet little wonderful uh, newborn child, is just as wicked and evil. What activates that sin nature is the volition, and what makes the difference between the evil that one person commits and the evil another person commits is not only the volition, but it's also depending upon the trends in that individual sin nature. You see, some people trend towards uh, antinomianism and licentiousness and immorality and all that goes with that, and other people have sin natures that trend towards, towards morality, towards legalism, towards... Uh, structure and control as part of power lust. So as long as we live in the devil's world, because man is inherently sinful, there is always going to be the threat of uh, unjust violence and uh, warfare. Therefore, it's necessary for a nation as well as individuals to be ready to protect themselves at any time and not to uh, somehow give that authority of self-protection to uh, someone else like a government. That's one reason people should have the freedom to bear arms. The founding fathers of this nation recognized that principle, that we had the right to possess firearms and to protect ourselves, because, especially against the tyranny of a government. And once government starts, rec starts taking note of where everybody has firearms and who has what, then the next step in the plan and in the agenda is to uh, take away all of those firearms. This is exactly what has happened in the last couple of years in Australia and also in Canada. And what has happened there has been uh, terrible, happened earlier in England, and that is the agenda. And if you don't believe that's the agenda, then I hate to insult you, but you have your head buried deep in the sand. That is the agenda of the entire gun control lobby, and that is their purpose. So it is ultimately to take away personal freedoms and personal protection from the individual citizen. And it's a failure to recognize the fact that we live in the devil's world and there will always be the threat of criminality and world violence. Point number three, or the third observation, is that pacifism is one aspect of the devil's cosmic thinking that has infiltrated not only modern society but the modern church. And it comes from two sources. The first is a pacifistic doctrine that was generated by a, in, in a form of Christianity that misunderstood and misinterpreted certain New Testament passages. Passages like love your enemy as yourself and, and turn the other cheek. Passages like that were misapplied in terms of military application. Now that is not biblical and there is much in the Bible that... Uh, argues against that. For example, when Jesus, we've looked at the passage in Luke 20, uh, 22, that when Jesus took the disciples to, the, to Gethsemane with him, he wanted to make sure they were armed. They had two swords with him, and he said that was enough. Now, the purpose for the arming of the disciples when they went to Gethsemane was because Jesus wanted to make sure that no one was going to interfere with God's plan, which was for him to die on the cross. He needed someone there who was armed to protect him in case one of the Roman soldiers or temple guards got carried away and decided to assassinate him on the spot. 
So there was a purpose for protecting him and for carrying weapons in the garden. So the Bible obviously does not have a presupposition that all violence is necessarily wrong. That is the presupposition governing modern thought. Just watch anything on TV, watch the major, many of the major news channels and editorialists and pundits, and their basic presupposition is that violence per se is in and of itself wrong. And that is a false concept, and don't be taken in by it. The problem is, in the terms of the fourth observation, is that human viewpoint paganism always assumes that nonviolence is an absolute standard. They have assumed that nonviolence is an absolute standard, and therefore, violence is inherently wrong. But if that's true, then, number one, God would not have authorized capital punishment in the Noahic Covenant. He not only authorized capital punishment, but mandated capital punishment. He authorized and mandated holy war when the Israelites went into the land of Canaan and told them to kill every man, woman, and child and to completely wipe out the Canaanite society because of their evil. God was using Israel to discipline the Canaanites for their rejection of him. God also authorized various military advances of the nation Israel in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you have the example of Jesus having the disciples uh, carry swords, and there's nothing in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus recognized in a couple of passages that it would be necessary to protect yourself through weaponry. In Romans chapter 13, the national entity, national government, is authorized the power of the sword, which means, which is a metaphor for life and death decisions, both, and that, which would include both uh, domestic protection in terms of having a sound police department, as well as external protection, foreign protection, having a, a military, as well as carrying out the judicial decision of capital punishment. So God authorizes violence at certain times. Violence is not inherently wrong in and of itself. Now, an analogy that we looked at from the, from the, uh, from the testing is that just as God left these nations to live in the land to test the people because they were going to uh, be able, the subsequent generations were going to learn things about God's ability to give them victory over these enemies that they would not have learned any other way. So in the same way, God has left the believer with a sin nature. At the point of salvation, you did not have your sin nature removed, wiped away. You still have the same old sin nature and it's just as wicked, just as vile, just as evil, and just as powerful. Well, not it doesn't control your life, but it still has tremendous influence in your life. You're no longer a slave to the sin nature, which Romans 6 tells us, but it still has power if we give it to the sin nature. So the issue comes down to volition. God has left that, that sin nature in us because we need to grow spiritually. And the only way we can grow spiritually is by learning to apply doctrine and the tests that we receive from the sin nature. In the doctrine of testing we covered in the last three weeks, we saw that there are always external circumstances. Now, the test is not necessarily or not inherently in that external circumstance. There may be a loss of a family member. There may be financial disaster. There may be some weather disaster. There may be, on the other hand, some tremendous prosperity that comes your way. That is simply the occasion of the test. The real test is how you respond to it in your soul, and that depends on your volition, whether or not you're going to apply 
doctrine to the situation and trust the Lord and handle the situation in terms of divine viewpoint thinking or whether you are going to reject divine viewpoint thinking and handle the situation on your own resources based on your own finite frame of reference. So God has left the sin nature in the believer so that we can learn principles of spiritual warfare and how to trust God in the midst of this testing. And that's where the whole panorama of the ten stress busters comes in and problem-solving devices, which we've studied in the past. And it begins with confession, because whenever we're trying to handle things on our own, then the sin nature is operational, and we're under control of the sin nature. And before we can ever advance spiritually, we have to deal with that. So we confess our sins, and we're restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, so that we can begin to apply doctrine. Under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, He begins to fill our soul with doctrine. On the basis of that doctrine, because we know certain things, we can trust them. That's the operation of the faith rest drill. We align our thinking to the Word of God. That's doctrinal orientation. We align our thinking to God's grace methodology, which is grace orientation. Then about that time, we begin to realize that we're not living just for today, but there is an eternal dimension to this called an inheritance. So we begin to live today in light of eternity not in relation to salvation, but in relationship to who and what we're going to be in the kingdom and in heaven, because God has certain rewards and certain blessings for us in eternity, and they are uh, on reserve depending upon how we advance in the spiritual life during our life on earth. So that is the personal sense of our eternal destiny, and that moves us into a spiritual adulthood where we begin to learn about personal love for God as the prime motivation in the spiritual life, And that, because we have a personal love for God, enables us to love one another unconditionally and impersonally. By impersonal, I mean that you don't have to know someone or have a personal relationship with them in order to demonstrate the kind of love that God has for us, uh, that God has mandated for us in the church age. So we have the love triplex, personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, and then occupation with Christ. As a result of all of that, We can then have the uh, joy of the Lord that Jesus Christ bequeathed to us, which is an inner stability, an inner happiness, an inner tranquility that is far beyond anything we can ever imagine. That is the outline of the spiritual life, and that is our spiritual fortification. When we have mastered the ten stress busters, then we have erected in our soul what the Bible calls edification, a structure, a strengthening of the soul that is our fortress. I call it a soul fortress based upon the grace of God. And when we are applying all of those uh, stress busters, then we are living in that soul fortress and we can handle any problem, any adversity, any difficulty in life because we are relying upon the power and provision of God. But when we disobey God, we are outside of that fortress and we are then in enemy territory. We are surrounded by cosmic thinking in the world system, and we have no resources to defend ourselves against that. And the longer we stay out there, the more catastrophic it becomes. And if you can remember that analogy as we go through the first judgeship this morning, then it will help you to understand why this is significant. We will get into a lot of interesting detail, interesting for some, maybe not so interesting for others. But if you don't keep your eye on the ball, you'll lose sight of where we're going. And the ball is our spiritual life, because it all relates to our spiritual life. And the Holy Spirit has particularly crafted the explanation of verses 7 through 11 specifically, so that we will understand certain things about how he operates. So what we saw 
was that at the conclusion last time in verses 5 and 6, is that the Israelites were surrounded by cultural diversity. thought I would bring it into a little modern terminology. We're surrounded by cultural diversity, and they have caved in to the cosmic system thought of multiculturalism and their form of situational ethics, and they have become moral relativists. This is described in verses 5 and 6. And the sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites. See, they were supposed to destroy them, but now they are coexisting with them and cohabiting with them. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives. They are no longer living independently or distinctly, having a separate lifestyle that categorizes them as living on divine viewpoint. They are now coexisting with and adopting uh, and taking as, as their wives the Canaanites and adopting their, uh, their entire system of thinking. They took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Principle, when they began to coexist with their enemies and quit thinking of them as enemies, then they began to, there's a stage, uh, various stages here, they began to justify them. They're really not that bad. You know, they uh, put on their pants one leg at a time, just like we do. They have the same problems we have in their families. They, they deal with the same struggles in terms of uh, agricultural fertility and problems that we do. So they're really not that bad. In fact, the guy next door is really rather nice guy. He's got a wonderful personality and a great sense of humor. He's always willing to help me out in the fields when I need a little help. So uh, I don't know why we ought to kill the guy or wipe out his family or destroy his children. And so they began to uh, enter into a little uh, justification of their enemies. That led to accepting their values. They're not so bad, so maybe the way they think isn't so bad. So they began to accept their value system and their, their standards of operation, and that led to the next step of not just uh, moving beyond what we used to call tolerance to what they now call tolerance. If you're not aware of that, then you need to realize that the term tolerance has changed its meaning in the last 10 or 15 years. Tolerance used to mean you allowed someone the freedom to disagree with you, but that did not mean you necessarily approved it or affirmed it. Today, tolerance means that you have to not only allow them to have a difference of opinion or a different lifestyle, but you have to approve of that lifestyle. And if you do not approve of that lifestyle and affirm of that lifestyle, whether it's homosexuality or whether it's alcoholism or no matter what it might be, whether it involves a different religious practice, if you don't approve of it, then you are now intolerant. That's how the meaning has changed. So if you think that you have the only way to heaven, then by definition of modern society, you are intolerant. And uh, by the way some people think, you are guilty of a hate crime. That's why you have to be very careful in watching how they define this hate crime legislation because they are beginning to, in some places around the world, make hate crime legislation anyone who uh, tries to convince someone that their religion is wrong and they need to convert to another religion. So in some countries where they have passed such legislation, that means that uh, missionaries are guilty of hate crimes. So we have to watch how modern man has redefined tolerance. 
And that's exactly what was happening in Israel. They went from justifying their neighbors to affirming and approving the values of the Canaanites, which then led to the inevitable step of accepting their religious practices and accepting all of their values and standards. And so there was no discernible difference between the way they, the Israelites, thought and lived and the way the Canaanites thought and lived. And that is exactly what we see going on today in the context of postmodernism. Under the banner of cultural diversity, modern man has elevated all cultures to the same level of values. It doesn't matter whether you're a Zulu from, from uh, uh, South Africa or whether you are uh, Chinese or Japanese or whether you are Western European, whether you are a, a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist, all systems have the same value because we have to affirm the humanity of every single individual. And so we all have the same value. See, it's hidden, it's freighted with all kinds of false assumptions that all truth is ultimately equal and therefore there is no overriding truth by which you can judge and evaluate everything. Now this involves, at its very core, a logical fallacy. But you see, what has happened is we have shifted in the way we think. I keep coming back to how we think, because you have to constantly evaluate this. We've shifted in how we think in Western civilization in the last 20 years. We've shifted from a post-enlightenment rationalism to an anti-rationalism and mysticism. Therefore, logic doesn't matter. See, at the core of postmodernism, what they're saying is that um, there is no such thing as absolute truth. The question is, is that an absolute truth? Now you see the contradiction. If you say there is no such thing as, ab- as absolutes, then you have just said there's at least one absolute, that there are no absolutes. Now you're involved in a logical fallacy and you're just circling around on yourself. So that is the basic problem, but modern man is, doesn't care about logical correctness. They only care about justifying their own sinful rejection of God and their own autonomy. What has happened by using the analogy from Romans chapter 1 is that there, God has established a distinction, a hard, I'm going to draw this line like this, a thick line. This is a solid wall showing that there is a major distinction between God as the Creator on the one hand and below the wall is all of creation, and er, including every creature. Now, what happens is when you come along and you reject absolutes and the source of absolutes and you do away with that which is above the line, the Creator, then the creation and the creature becomes the source of all meaning and all value and all significance. So, definition and meaning in life comes from within and not from outside. Now, to put it another way, what we have done by removing a creator is destroy the source of any kind of, uh, any, any objective source of truth, knowledge, value, or absolutes. Once you destroy objective reality, then all that you are left with is subjectivism. So meaning then is determined in many cases by how it makes you feel. And that is why we've entered into a society where the most important thing is how you feel about things instead of how you think about things. 
because true thought is dependent upon objectivity, and when you're in subjectivism, there is no such thing as objectivity anymore. So now, in modern society, because there is no objective truth, we have rejected as intolerant any notion that there is an objective, absolute criterion outside of man. So once you have destroyed the creator up above, what you've really done is create a vacuum, and into that vacuum comes whatever the creature determines should fill that vacuum. Now the analogy here is that in the life of the believer, the war is always between the absolute standards of the Word of God, the objective, eternal absolutes of the Word of God, and the moral relativism that is promoted by the sin nature. See, the sin nature is either going to drag you or push you towards licentiousness and antinomianism. Antinomianism is from a Greek word meaning against law, that there are no absolutes. I can do whatever I want. I'm the ultimate source of, of, what, of determining right or wrong. Or it goes towards self-righteousness. Those are the two trends in the sin nature. We have our sin nature diagram. Sin nature is driven by the core values of lust, either towards trending towards uh, self-righteousness on the one hand, legalism, asceticism, or towards licentiousness and antinomianism on the other hand. Now, one of the interesting things that, that not only does this apply individually, but collectively it can apply to an entire generation. And what we see here in this chapter is that the entire, an entire generation can be characterized spiritually. And that's exactly what God does time and time again in Judges. And so even though there are members of each generation that may be positive and follow the Lord, there, or, or maybe the majority of the generation is positive and there are a few that are negative, you can characterize legitimately an entire generation. Well, what we've seen in our own lifetime, for those of you who are over 40, is that back in the 60s, we had a cultural trend among the baby boomers towards licentiousness and antinomianism, free love, do away with marriage, everything goes, let's just have a good time. The whole drug culture was a move towards licentiousness and antinomianism. But just like in individuals, an individual's life and experience, there's often a swing from one to the other because something doesn't work, so you go the other way. Our culture is now swung towards a self-righteous legalism. But this is not a self-righteous legalism based upon a moral absolute from the Scriptures. It is a self-righteous legalism and arrogance based upon uh, new cultural values. And the new cultural value, of course is multiculturalism and tolerance. So that if you are not, and tolerance, as I said earlier, must be defined as an affirmation and approval. So now if you are, now the legalistic self-righteousness of our age is that if you are not tolerant of the homosexuals, if you are not tolerant of those who are engaged in all sorts of immorality, if you are not tolerant of that, then you are intolerant, and that's the great sin, and we're going to squash you like a bug. And that's how this, this swings back and forth from antinomianism to uh, self-righteousness. And you can just see it in anything that you watch on, uh, on the news these days in any kind of cultural, uh, any kind of c cultural analysis. So we come to looking at this in, in terms of the argument of judges. And what we see is that when you have an apostate society, 
a society that has rejected the absolutes of God, where the majority of the individuals are uh, functioning with extreme negative volition towards God and the principles given by God in scriptures, then even the great leaders that God provides are unable to change that society. That's the argument. That's what we're going to see. God supplies some tremendous leaders. There, there are tremendous victories that God gives in each of these cycles, but it just deteriorates from one to the other because the people have failed to be positive to God. And the issue isn't even whether or not the people are believers or not. The issue may be whether or not they're willing to function according to the laws of divine establishments, the the absolutes of Scripture which are given for unbeliever and believer alike. The Ten Commandments were not given just for believers in the nation Israel. They were given for believers and unbelievers. The entire Mosaic Law was for believers as well as unbelievers in the nation. It was not a way of salvation, but it was a law code that would guarantee absolute freedom within that nation. And what Judges is showing us is the decline from that generation to the generation in 1 Samuel 8 where a centralized power is introduced called the kingship of Israel and God has warned them about that. And God warns them about the dangers of that later on. Now we come to uh, verse 7. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and the Asherot. They served the Baals and the Asherot. Well, in order to understand what's going on here, we need to break it down into a phrase-by-phrase analysis to get the gist and the impact of what's happening here. We see the phrase that the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and this is stated six times in the book of Judges in relation to each of the six major cycles of disobedience. In chapter 3, verse 7 here, verse 12, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, and chapter 10, verse 6, you have these uh, references to the fact that the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, we should ask a question here. What does it mean that they did what was evil? Does that mean that they just committed a lot of sin? Does that mean that they were just involved in, uh, let's say, sexual immorality? Or what exactly does it mean? Well, if you would do a contextual study of this phrase, doing what was evil throughout the Old Testament, it is used in the majority of cases to describe idolatry. It is used in the majority of cases to describe idolatry. This is not just some, some general statement in reference to sinfulness. It is talking specifically about idolatry. Now, why would that be? Well, those of you who were here for the Old Testament intro series that we just completed will remember that the Mosaic Covenant is a covenant that was expressed in terms of an ancient contract form or ancient treaty form called a suzerain vassal treaty. And the way this took place in the ancient world is that you would have a, a king of a, or an emperor of a, of a great nation, for example, a Hittite king, and, and we have several examples of this that we've discovered in, in archaeological digs from, from the Hittite empire about this time, that you would have a king of an empire and he would go out and he would conquer various nations. 
these nations would be set up, something like client nations to this great king, and they were called vassal nations. And he would enter into a, a contract with them. And as part of that contract, he would outline all of the positive things that he would do for that vassal king as long as they were loyal to him. They were, in a sense, enslaved to that king, but they still had a measure of personal freedom as long as they were obedient to the terms of the contract. But once they disobeyed the contract, then the king would also outline various negative things that would happen. I'm going to come in with my army and I'm going to uh, rape, pillage, and plunder, and I'm going to steal all of your crops, and I'm going to leave you impoverished for the next year. It would be uh, expressed along lines like that. So, God used this same contract form to express His will for the nation in terms of the Mosaic Covenant. And we, have the, we, we call them the blessings and the cursings given in like uh, Leviticus 28 and Deuteronomy uh, 28 through 30. We have the expression of the blessing and cursing aspects of the Mosaic Covenant. And what God is saying to Israel is, I am the great king, I am the great Lord, I own you because I purchased you from slavery in Egypt. And you are mine, I have redeemed you out from Egypt, and you are my vassal kingdom in the world. You are my representative. It's analogous to the New Testament doctrine of the ambassadorship of the believer. You are my vassal and as long as you are obedient to me, now I want all of you to come on Wednesday night when we're studying dispensations and covenants to remember this, because this is going to play right into our understanding of covenants on Wednesday night, is that if you obey me, see, see this contract, this is why I was saying this last Wednesday night, that this contract is, is uh, unconditional. God's saying, I'm going to do this unconditionally. I'm either going to bless you unconditionally, or if you disobey me, I'm going to curse you unconditionally, but you can count on it. I'm not going to walk away from the contract, but it's a temporary contract. That's why I'm uh, moving towards that terminology instead of the uh, permanent, temporary versus unconditional, conditional that uh, we normally use to describe those, those covenants. But nevertheless, what you have is God defining the blessings and the cursings because his, he's got a mission and a plan for Israel as a missionary nation in the world. And he says, if you disobey me and you violate the contract, the terms of the contract, then I'm going to come in and... Because 28, we have five cycles of discipline, five stages of disciplinary action that God would take against the nation Israel as a covenant nation. And the fifth and final form was that God would remove them from the land that he had promised them and that he gave them and scatter them among the nations. But even then, God had a promise in the midst of Leviticus 28... That, and also, as well as it's repeated in Deuteronomy 4, that when that happened, and that happened, of course, twice in history, it happened in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, and it happened again in 70 A.D. when uh, the Romans went in and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, and the Jews are scattered throughout the world now. God said, I will bring you back to the land, and I will bless you. So there is that ultimate promise, even in the Mosaic Code, that God would restore Israel to the land and fulfill all of the Abrahamic blessings. So the background to understanding the dynamics here is this suzerain-vassal treaty because God is the suzerain and what they are doing in idolatry is they are rebelling. 
They are rejecting God as their king, and they're setting up these false gods, the idols, the Baals and the Asheroth, as their suzerain. It is an act of political and spiritual rebellion against God. And so God, as as their true king, is going to come in and discipline them in line with the promises that he made in the Abrahamic, I mean, in the Mosaic Covenant. They did what was evil. They rejected their true king and substituted another king. They did what was right. And the next phrase that we look at is, in the sight, literally in the Hebrew, it is in the eyes of the Lord. Notice, they didn't do what was evil in the eyes of the Canaanites. It doesn't say they did what was evil in their own eyes. It doesn't say they did what was evil in the eyes of the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Mesopotamians. It says they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The implication here is that there is an absolute. We have to go back to our understanding of the distinction, the creator-creature distinction, and they saw that there was a distinction. Now, the Bible is teaching that there is a distinction that values do not come from below that line. Values and standards are not generated by man on the basis of rationalism, empiricism, or intuition, mysticism, but that values are imposed upon the creation by its creator, and that is his right and that is his privilege. So this emphasizes the fact that there are absolute standards that exist outside the realm of human experience and that God holds us accountable to them. So the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and the emphasis there by using the tetragrammaton, which as you notice on the overhead, is translated with all caps. And that indicates that in the original Hebrew, it is the name Yahweh, which was transliterated by some Jehovah, uh, the, the, it's originally just four consonants, Y-H-W-H. There were no vowels. The Jews never read or pronounced the name of God out of respect. What they did instead, whenever they would read the text, was they would pronounce the, the name, the generic name, Lord Adonai. And so in the Hebrew text, they inserted the vowel points, the Hebrew vowel points for Adonai, under the consonants for Yahweh. And then when you put that hobglob together, you get something that was translated Jehovah. So Jehovah is never found anywhere in the Bible. It is merely a compound word based upon uh, that, that Hebrew technique for reminding the reader that he should not pronounce the name Yahweh, but just pronounce Adonai instead. But it is the personal name of God. It is the name of God associated with his covenant with Israel. So what God is saying here is they did evil in the sight of their covenanted God, the one who had redeemed them and purchased them as a nation for himself out of bondage in Egypt. And they forgot the Lord their God. They forgot the Lord their God. And here we have the cow perfect of the Hebrew word shakak, which is, should not be translated with such a weak, pusillanimous term as forget. Looks like this in the Hebrew, S-H-A-K-A-C-H, shakak. And shakak means, does not mean to, temporar- to uh, temporarily neglect something, to have momentary a- amnesia like, oh gosh, where did I put the car keys this morning? Or, oh, I forgot to mail in that bill yesterday. I better remember to mail it in tomorrow. That's not the idea here. They just didn't have some sort of... They just didn't temporarily overlook the presence of God. The word here refers to something much more intentional and insidious. 
It is related to the stronger verb used back in 2.11. You have almost a parallel phrase statement in 2.11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals. Verse 12, and they forsook the Lord. And there you have the cow perfect of the word Azab. Now here you have two parallel statements. And when that happens, that second more precise verb helps you understand the exact nuance of the other verb. So this should be written with a apostrophe A-Z-A, and that's a soft B, B without the uh, doggish, so it's transliterated like a, uh, like a V, Azav. And Azav means to depart, to abandon, to forsake, or to reject. So back there we see that they departed from God, they abandoned God, they forsook God, they rejected God. So when we come to Shakak down here in verse 7, they forgot the Lord their God, it means that they intentionally disregarded Him. Uh, it, uh, Shakak also has the meaning to sink into oblivion. So as far as they were concerned, God is completely removed from their thinking. He has been consigned to oblivion. They, it means to disdain, to disregard, and to reject. So we could translate that. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of their covenant God, Yahweh, and they rejected and disdained the Lord their God, and they served. And here we have the word avad, which means not only to serve, but to worship. It is always used in these kinds of contexts for worship. The interesting thing is, those of you who are here on Wednesday night, you'll pay attention to this on Wednesday night, when I start talking about the first covenant in Eden, the requirement that God put on man in the Garden of Eden was to, it's usually translated to serve and to guard, or serve and to work in the garden. But that word for serve is this word here. It is avad. It is not merely to work, although in certain contexts that's all it means. But when it's used in a religious context, as it is here, it means to worship. And so they are worshiping and putting themselves in a subservient role to the Baals. Now, who are they supposed to be subservient to? To God who purchased them from slavery in Egypt. He is the one who's entered into a contract with them. And so it is an act of political and spiritual rebellion. Well, this does not go unpunished. It is going to develop the anger of the Lord in verse 8. But before we go on, I want to bring out something else that is part and parcel of the act of forgetting the Lord their God. Not only is this a volitional act, it is emphasizing the fact of personal responsibility. They have made a choice. And the issue in life is always volition. Sometimes that volition may be uh, uncertain. We may not be sure of what it is. Uh, We may not be conscious of our volitional act, but it is always our volition. Now, they have intentionally chosen Baal over the Asherah. This is viewed as an act of treason towards God. It's punishable by extreme measures. In order to do this, certain things must happen mentally or psychologically in the nation. What must happen? Remember, the time that we're talking about 
is just after the death of Joshua and the death of the elders who came in with Joshua. Joshua was a young man, probably um, in his 20s or 30s, at the time of the Exodus in 1446 B.C. He lived through the 40 years of the uh, wilderness discipline because he and Caleb were the only two that were willing to trust God to go into the land. So he's approximately 70 to 80 years of age when he goes into the land. So he didn't survive a whole lot longer. The conquest of the land is usually put somewhere between 1405 B.C. to about 1398-1399 B.C. So you put add another maybe 10 or 15 years onto that, and he dies probably around 1370. And this is taking place just subsequent to that. Give another 10 years or so for all the nation to go by, for all the elders in that generation to die off. And it's around 1360. Now, 13, think about this. 1360 is only 40 years removed from the conquest. From all that God did at Jericho, at Ai, the campaigns in the south and campaign in the north, it's only 40 years removed from, from God parting the, the river Jordan so that all 12 tribes can walk across on dry land. 40 years, it's been 55 years since the end of World War II. That puts it in context. They've forgotten everything about just as we are already beginning to hear of historical revisionism to rewrite the history of World War II. I was reminded of a statement by a friend of mine this summer when we were in uh, Normandy. We got the opportunity to walk uh, Omaha Beach. And a friend of mine was firmly committed to the principle that every American ought to have to walk Omaha Beach and walk through the cemetery there before they're allowed to vote. I said that to one person, and their comment was, yeah, well, maybe we wouldn't go to war anymore. Totally missed the point. The point is that our freedoms were purchased through the sacrifice of hundreds, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people throughout the last 200 years, and we need to be appreciative of that. But when you get into paganism, history doesn't matter anymore. And so you begin to rewrite and reshape history, and history loses objectivity. Why? Because in paganism, you no longer have that, that creator-creature distinction. Once you remove the creator, you lose objectivity. There's no longer objective facts, so history is no longer objective facts with reality and meaning. It is simply things that have happened that you can uh, rearrange to fit whatever your own meaning is that you assign to it because all meaning now comes from below that level from the creature. In subjectivity, he applies his own meaning. So thus, history now becomes a tool. And you see this in history, where, I mean, throughout history, where totalitarian regimes have always reshaped history in order to promote their own agenda. You saw it with Hitler. You saw it with the uh, communists and the Soviets and, and their history. You saw the, that they did many things to rewrite history. You saw it even in the ancient world among the Egyptians and the Hittites and the Canaanites. They had no concept of history. They, in fact, all they had was legend. And you have the historical objectivity of what happened at the flood when God destroyed the entire antediluvian civilization at the time of Noah and only eight people survived. Noah's three sons went on to be the progenitors of all subsequent civilizations. And within just a few generations, you have the episode of the Tower of Babel. They have once again forgotten God, and they are rewriting history. What happened back then? You know, we have this memory of something. Oh, well, you know, the gods just had a big party, and they got drunk and decided to punish man. 
And that's exactly what you find if you read the Gilgamesh epic that was produced by the Babylonians to explain the flood. Objective history is lost and it deteriorates into legend and myth. And that's always the procedure. And yet what happened with history and the understanding of history in the last 200 years in America is that history has been consistently attacked by the liberal, by both the philosophical and the political and the religious liberal, because if you destroy the objectivity of history, then you destroy the meaning of history and the one who gives meaning to history, which is God. And if history is meaningless, and Jesus Christ did not have to come to the cross to die, and it's not a historical issue. And how that has affected most Christians is that when they present the gospel, they don't present the gospel in terms of of historical reality. They present it as a psychological benefit. You know, invite Jesus into your life to solve your problems. I invited Jesus into my life, and now everything's wonderful. You see, it's subjectivity, subjectivity, subjectivity. It's all what about me, 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 and how Jesus is going to make me do better. And it's not anything about the fact that on a particular date in space-time history, the eternal second person of the Trinity was crucified on a cross. God the Father poured out on him the sins of the entire world. And because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins, you are now free from eternal condemnation and have a relationship with God. That's the gospel. It is not invite Jesus into your heart to solve your problems. That's a false gospel and has nothing to do with the historical reality of Scripture. But you see what happens is liberalism comes along and says history really doesn't matter, and so we no longer present a historical Jesus, we present a psychological Jesus. And in doing so, we present a very subtle but false gospel. Now, we still have... Three great verses to get into, and we don't have time to do that, so we'll have to wait until next time where we'll pick up in verse 8 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who has worked in history, that history is your plan and purposes out, working its way out through, through our lives, that you have worked in history and you have left markers demonstrating the reality of what you have done in space-time history. There were markers left Uh, by the Israelites, stone markers left to mark the day that you parted the the river Jordan so the tribes could walk across on dry land. And yet we see what happens when people reject what you have done in history and reject your objective existence, and the result is always a destruction of the nation, destruction of the people, destruction of freedom, and the result is slavery. Father, we know that we were born slaves to sin and that Jesus Christ died on the cross to free us from that slavery. Father, it's our prayer that right now that if there's anyone here this morning without a certainty of their eternal destiny, without any understanding of salvation, that they would know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. That they would know that you have offered them eternal salvation. It's a free gift. It's not based on works. It's not based on moral reformation of the life. It's not based on church membership. It's not based on any human factor. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every sin in human history on the cross. The issue is not what you've done. The issue is what Christ did. So now the only thing for you to do is what Scripture says. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So right now, right where you sit, you can have eternal salvation. You don't need to do anything but trust Christ alone for your salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge the rest of us with what we have learned today, that we'd realize that there is much more to Christianity than simple Bible stories, but that it revolutionizes the way we think about reality and the way that we operate as a culture and as a citizen and operate within our civilization. 
We pray that you would challenge us with the need to learn more and to revolutionize our thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.